On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Leslie Miller about the role of a guardian ad litem, preparing for a custody evaluation, how the abuser flips the script in court, and how to handle false accusations. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. Today on our show, we have Leslie Miller. Leslie Miller is an L-I-C-S-W, and she was also from 2013 to 2019 a guardian ad litem, and she has a lot of great information for everyone who's going through uh, divorce, separation, custody issues. And you have to listen to this episode. She has a lot of expertise in this field as a guardian ad litem and what to do in this process. So make sure to stay for the whole entire episode. There's a lot of great information in there. And before we get to our episode, for people that also listen to our Survivor Story episode, if you want to be a guest on that show, please go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page. There's a button that says Guest Form. Press that button and away we will go from there. Another way to be part of our show is to be on our Letters to My Narcissist compilation episode and for that you go to narcissistapocalypse.com side of the page there's a floating button says send voicemail press that button and away we will go from there if you do not want to read the letter yourself and you want me or my old pal melissa to read the letter for you please send us an email at narcissistapocalypse at gmail.com and put letters to my narcissist in the subject line And if you listen to the show and you are an expert in the field and have a subject that you want to discuss, that's a real drilled down specific subject that you feel people need to know about. We're not talking about an overview of everything. We're talking about real nitty gritty stuff. And you want to be on that show, uh, on this show, on that show. But on this show, please, again, email me at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and give me an overview uh, uh, or an outline of what you would like to discuss. And we will go from there. And again, just for everyone who listens to the show, thank you for supporting the show. Uh, you know, we restarted our Q&As here. We've had a great response and we'll soon be opening up a brand new social network community for everyone uh, at the beginning of September. It's going to be different from our Patreon. We'll be moving off of Patreon. It's already looking beautiful. So get ready for that in the next few weeks when we do a real big push to get everyone on there. And we got a lot of good creative ideas to you know, get everyone on there and communicating with each other. And, you know, we're going to be coming to help each other heal. But at the same time, you're going to make long lasting lifetime friendships with the people that are there. And just, you know, keep, uh, 
Keep helping us out. Keep supporting us. That helps us support everyone else out there. We're reaching thousands and thousands of people. So again, thank you for everyone that listens to the show. Thank you for the people on the Patreon who have helped uh, support the show for a long time and also the people that have been becoming sponsors of our show. So a big thanks to everyone. And now, without further ado, here is my episode with Leslie Miller. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. Today with me, I have Leslie Miller. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Well, for everyone out there, Leslie Miller is a trauma-informed, licensed, independent clinical social worker who also administers EMDR. She was a custody evaluator, a.k.a. a guardian ad litem from 2013 to 2019, who has witnessed the devastation of high-conflict divorce and how unresolved conflict and continued engagement in toxic relationships can impact the mental health and well-being of parents and children. You are a specialist in narcissistic abuse, divorce, and custody, and I just want to thank you for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. And another thing I actually didn't mention is you also uh, do yoga uh, work as well, and you do mind-body work when it comes to trauma as well, correct? Yes, I do. And yes. for people out there who are uh, you know, dealing with trauma, doing body work with trauma is also important. So maybe we'll eventually we could do an episode talking about that. But um, for right now... Today, we are going to discuss uh, things from the perspective of a guardian ad litem when, it's, when it involves surviving custody disputes with a narcissist or a toxic abuser. And I guess, you know, the first kind of questions or things that we're going to kind of go over here of how do you prepare? Well, first of all, what is a guardian ad litem and how do you prepare for a custody evaluation? Yeah, so um, the court will appoint somebody to eval evaluate. So a guardian ad litem is someone who is appointed by the court to evaluate specific issues pertaining to custody, to make a formal recommendation to the court. Um, it can be very comprehensive and they can also be brief depending if the judge, you know, how detailed the judge wants that to be. So a guardian ad litem could be a mental health person if it is suspected that mental health um, issues may impact custody one way or another. Um, they can also be an attorney where those are more fact-based evaluations where uh, an attorney would not be able to sort of weigh in on mental health issues. Um, but they're, in some states, they're done by volunteers. So it, it, it really depends. It varies from district, district to district in different court systems. But um, I, I was appointed to do mainly... Um, you know, from the perspective of a, of a mental health um, professional. So a guardian ad litem really is the person that evaluates. It's a neutral party that evaluates custody based on the needs of the child. So a GAL 
will go into both parents' homes, um, often speak with um, the child's school if they're old enough to attend school, maybe daycare, anybody connected to the child um, or children. And um, it, it's fairly comprehensive in most cases. Interviews are done with both parents, um, collaterals provided by the parents, as well as, as the children themselves. So when it comes to abusers and being in court, we all hear that an abuser, depending on, on, on what type, they can really kind of flip the switch on, on everyone. So how does an abuser flip the script in court to manipulate the system? Yeah, well, so that's a great question. So when you're dealing with um, a toxic abuser or someone who is really narcissistic, what a lot of clients will, will tell me, so now that I'm on the other side and I'm working as a therapist with uh, individuals going through high conflict custody um, and divorce is that they're often accused in court of the very same behaviors that, that, you know, that that the other party is doing. So in other words, it's sort of that classic projection that a narcissist likes to do where often what they're doing themselves they will blame other people and, and play the victim. So where a lot of people involved in a, in a custody evaluation get tangled up is they spend a lot of time defending themselves in court against false allegations. And they have a difficult time finding their way out of that and keeping the focus on the critical core issues. And that's really where... Preparation is so crucial, how to, how to prepare ahead of time. Um, unfortunately, I find often that attorneys don't really prep their clients very well for a GAL evaluation, whether it's because they haven't, you know, they're, it's not something that they're comfortable with or they, they don't understand the process themselves. Um, I, I'm not sure. But a lot of people are, are really flying blind on these, and it's a, it's a really, it's, it's not a good strategy. Um, it's critical that you really organize yourself prior to meeting with a guardian ad litem because you're going to have to prove pretty strenuously any claims that you're making um, about the parenting of the other party. So um, I encourage people to really organize three to five issues that they want the GAL to really understand about either themselves as a parent or the shortcomings of the other parent that should really, you know, be a factor. In, in determining custody. And it's critical to write these things out, your rationale for each point, and to collect um, your evidence or data points that you're going to um, provide to the GAL. So, you know, an example of that would be something along the lines of, um, certainly, I mean, if you have any, 
uh, concerns about neglect, abuse, um, verbal abuse, you, you know, and, and you have any kind of um, data that shows that this is something that, that's gone on. It may be in the form of a text message, harassment, um, and canceled medical appointments, somebody outright trying to sabotage appointments. Those things become really important evidence to, to back up your claims. So I'm going to go off script here just a little, a tiny bit. And we were going to discuss the factors that influence custody and what a guardian ad litem is looking for. But are there things that a guardian ad litem might look for, I guess, on a case-by-case basis, like extra work? Uh, if they want to, is it discretionary? Is it like up to that individual of what they are actually looking for to determine what type of person they are dealing with? Right. Well, you know, a lot of this is up to the individual guardian ad litem doing the evaluation and what they think is important in in the case. So um, the, the bad news for a lot of people involved in high-conflict custody cases and divorce, um, the courts will kind of come into it with the perception of, 50-50 custody. Most of the courts have moved toward that it's assumed that you're starting at 50-50 and you're going to work back from, from there. So um, clients and, and people involved in this have a lot of work to do in order to prove that someone is not a fit parent. The courts do not want to hear that your your divorcing your your divorcing partner is is a narcissist. Like you know, I, I frequently hear from people, you know, this person's narcissistic. The GAL doesn't get it. The judge doesn't get it. I'm not sure my attorney gets it. What should I do? And it's a great point because um, the courts are not designed to get it. And I like to remind people kind of at that point that, you know, if you've been involved with a narcissist, it took you a long time to get it. You know, any of us who've ever been in a relationship with a narcissist find our, our you know, ourselves spinning for a long time before we find the door and really understand what's going on. So you really need to focus on the behaviors of the narcissist. So kind of calling somebody out and say, geez, I think my, my ex-wife is narcissistic or my ex-husband is narcissist and he shouldn't have custody, that, that, that may not mean a lot, particularly if the GAL is not savvy to mental health you know, issues, if they're not a mental health expert. But you want to focus on what what are the behaviors behind your concerns. Um, I'm gonna, you know, kind of assume that if you're if you're saying that your the parent is a narcissist or toxic or abusive or all of the above, that they lack empathy, and you want to really focus on examples of how that parent has failed the child. In a, in a historical pattern, you know, is there a pattern of this parent 
that they they don't really have empathy for the child. Um, you know, possibly that I've seen in, in, in a lot of these cases where one parent is highly narcissistic, children are often extensions of that parent. They're, they're objects of that parent. They want the child to make them look good, you know, like win medals and soccer games and or maybe be an excellent student um, to the point where, you know, they're, they're primarily judged and, and their relationship is in, in many respects is based on, you know, kind of achievement and, and performance-oriented activities. Um, that, that may not be so great for that child's emotional health. So the task then is for that other parent to just to to prove that 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 parent does not have that child's best interest truly in mind and, and may be impacting them in a very detrimental way. You know, possibly that child has gotten involved with uh, substances or started to do poorly in school, or ends up in the principal's office, um, or their pediatrician expressed some concerns, um, or a teacher, you know, that they used to be really social and they've started to withdraw. Um, Those kinds of things become really relevant in a custody evaluation um, where they're they're provable because other people have observed the similar concerns. So once this process happens, everyone thinks that they're going to kind of get justice. But occasionally, you know, false allegations are, are thrown in there, which confuse a, a lot of things. So how does someone handle false allegations? Yeah, so this is a real problem when divorcing a narcissist. Um, as as many uh, people in your audience already know, that the narcissist is a master at, at baiting you and creating chaos, and um, it's like a bomb went off. You know, you, you can never really get to the point. You can never, you're, you'll, you find yourself endlessly on sort of the hamster wheel from hell, because they don't ever want a resolution. In fact, there's, you know, sort of a a lot of um, stuff out there right now about people who are really abused by the legal system because one of the things a narcissist may do is keep you in court for, you know, months, maybe years, filing endless motions on things that are fairly meaningless and baseless, but it's it's another form of harassment. So the narcissist has found, you know, a stage where they can play their victim uh, story, get a, have an audience, and harass you at the same time. So it's sort of like a, a perfect setting for this type of personality, which is why custody cases in high-conflict divorce, from, from my perspective as, as a GAL and a, a mental health person, the courts are filled with with uh, narcissistic abuse. It's it's where a, a bad domestic situation will almost almost always end up. So while you're being baited, and while you're that person, your your um, ex's 
lawyer is also baiting you, it's highly, highly triggering for anyone going through it. I I strongly suggest that anyone who is involved in a custody situation and, and if there's any false allegations going on, that you get help with the stress. You get help from somebody who understands narcissism, understands the court system, understands what you're going through to help keep you grounded. You must stay organized and try very, very strenuously not to go down the rabbit hole of false allegations. There will always be things, depending on how severe they are, that you will have to defend yourself against because, you you, you know, if it's something like a false claims of abuse, false claims about substance abuse, something that could really sway custody, um, you're going to, you're going to need to defend yourself against. But what I often encourage people to do is go back to the outline that they created at the beginning of the evaluation where you're actually writing out your three to five top concerns about the evaluation and the investigation of the other party. And you go back to the main thing, the main thing, the main thing, because if you're spending all your time defending yourself and trying to deflect and attack, you're never going to get to the, to the point. So it's staying really organized. And it's important for people also to remember that the GAL is there really only to evaluate on the basis of what's best for the children. So to kind of go back and to the beginning of the relationship and talk about things that may have happened, you know, in the course of the, 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 the marriage or the, the partnership is is generally an, a, a mistake. You know, you have limited time to get the attention of the GAL. So you want to go for the most important things first, things that are provable. And, and that's what keeps your case, you know, more solid and from going into a rabbit hole that you can really never recover from. So, a lot of the time I hear that parents feel that they should get full custody. They don't want their partner to have full custody because of the way they are. However, that is not the reality that we are living in. 50-50 custodies is usually given. So uh, what are the challenges to getting full custody if that is something you desperately want? Yeah, um, the challenges are are great. I mean, um, often domestic abuse is overlooked as a factor in court. Um, the The court has a way of sort of separating out that just because someone was abused in the, the course of the marriage doesn't mean that that same abuser is abusive to the children and they really don't look at it from in a holistic way that hey if one party is being abused that absolutely impacts the children so things are 
very compartmentalized. And, you know, somebody who's abusive to their spouse, they may not overtly act out the same types of abuse on their children, but that characterologically, there's still there's still the, the manipulation going on, um, all the things, particularly with a, a, a narcissist, that are really damaging. Um, this is where you start to see things like parental alienation start to happen. Um, so I, I, I think that it's it's a real challenge. Um, unfortunately, GALs get it wrong. Judges get it wrong. Um, sort of in this push to for 50-50 custody. Um, fathers' rights groups have also picked up a lot of steam in the court system. And I, I have to say that I've unfortunately witnessed, I feel that mothers and fathers are judged frequently very differently in court, you know, where you, I could honestly say that, um, you know, had a, a, a mom done the same, engaged in similar behaviors as a father, um, that the mom was, it's looked at very, very differently. So I, if you have, concerns that are really solid about any forms of abuse, whether it be sexual, whether it be mental, uh, psychological abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, neglect, you must keep really good records. So, you know, anything from my, the, my child's um, father or mother didn't seek medical care when they had a temperature for three days while in their care. Um, things like that, something that's provable. Um, teachers who realize that, hey, after this child spends time with um, that parent, they're never prepared. Maybe they're upset in school. Maybe they come in unshowered. Um and you get an email, that becomes your evidence that you're going to give to the GAL. So it's a collection of things like that that have happened over time. So it can't be that it just happened last weekend. So if you, you know, if this is, if this is something that is important to you where this is one of the main thrusts of why you don't want that parent to have full custody or even 50-50 custody, you need to show a pattern of behavior over time supported by evidence. So I have a couple questions. And maybe yeah. I, I don't have a couple. Maybe I just have one question. And I'm going a little bit off script here. When it comes to the children, uh, do children testify in these situations and – you know, let's say I'm a 15-year-old kid who really doesn't want to live with one of the parents. Does that even come into play? Like, does that is there a factor there at all? Because, you know, I hear sometimes where the teenagers don't want to go and they're still forced to go. So, so why and how? Yeah, that's a wonderful question because it happens. This is an issue that comes up all the time in court. 
So the uh, an adolescent is interviewed by the guardian ad litem, and uh, the guardian ad litem will take into account what is is said by by a, an adolescent, and if they express a clear preference for one parent over another, or, you know, hey, this is my person that makes my world happen the way that it does, and I'm just more comfortable here, or I don't get along with, you know, mom's boyfriend or dad's girlfriend, I'm just really not comfortable over there. Those are all things that that the GAL considers. Where this gets tricky is that this, it's, ultimately up to a judge. In many courts, an older child's um, preference is considered because they're any, anybody over 14 and especially 16 and up, that the preference has a lot of weight that a younger child d- does not because the, a younger child often is considered maybe either not an accurate reporter or isn't able to really weigh in on what's best for them. Having said that, I've seen numerous cases where, a, say, a 15-year-old expressed a very clear preference to live with one parent versus another, and the court still didn't take it into consideration. And, and that is where the judge comes into the mix and you know of course the judge has the final say judges do not always take the recommendations of the guardian ad litem i mean many do but there are also many that do not so when it comes to the court and understanding narcissistic abuse abusers in general you know what don't they understand and is this the biggest problem of the court system yeah, yeah. Um, they don't really understand. I think what happens is, first of all, the courts are filled with high conflict cases and, and otherwise. So they're they're a little bit um, numb to what they're they're listening to. And if somebody comes in there, I mean, the difficult thing about narcissistic abuse is if there's been no physical violence. And there are no police reports and there are no, there are no, there's been no involvement by child protective services. Um, you are really, you have a, a much steeper climb because narcissistic abuse is something that really isn't understood by a lot of people. And it, it can be subtle and not so subtle, but it happens you know the the warfare is is your happens internally. You know, making somebody think they go they're going crazy, being really devaluing, uh, being verbally abusive. Maybe it's in the form of sarcasm. Maybe it's in the form of you know demeaning comments. Um, it's really hard for the court system to really completely get that. And when you have attorneys that are, you know, um, high conflict, and they're in front of the judge all the time with lots of motions, so it's heavy court involvement. The, the judges will often sort of just consider that 
oh, it's just a bad divorce. These people really don't like each other, and that's what's going on. And the more blaming that's going on on both sides, they'll just kind of, it almost gets sort of canceled out. So people have to be really, really selective about the issues they want to raise. Um, and really mindful about the number of motions that they're filing and keeping the most important things in front of the judge because you have, you know, limited time and you don't have their attention for very long. I have a question about proof. And is it possible that, you know, I don't know what's admissible in court, but if you had recordings, you know, you turn on your recorder when your spouse is being not just abusive towards you, but being abusive verbally towards your kids. Is that something that is admissible in court? Is that recommended or not? It, it's a, it's not a straightforward answer. Um, a guardian at, a guardian ad litem can listen to a recording. So if there's a GAL on the case, I used to routinely take um, audios, um, text messages, videos. I reviewed emails. I mean, anything that somebody had that they wanted to provide that would would support what they were saying, I, I really wanted to see it. Um, and anything that the GAL will review becomes an exhibit in court. So um, at the end of a case, I'd submit a report, and then I would get a, a document subpoena. And anything that I looked at, even if it was a child's drawing, you know, if somebody brought in somebody's artwork that maybe they did in a therapy office or at school or something that they were concerned about and they wanted me to look at, those things all became exhibits, and so they were, they became part of the, the document that, that would go to trial. When you were getting up there on your own in front of a judge or just with your lawyer, the judge may, you know, because of time or all kinds of factors, it may not be admissible. They may say, no, you know, that we're, we're not, we're not going to listen to that. We're not doing that. When you have a guardian ad litem, there's a lot more a wiggle room on what you, you can present. Does that answer the question, I hope? Yep. So, you know, once court ends, uh, you are now going to be, for the most part, in a co-parenting uh, situation. So uh, can you co-parent, in your opinion, with a, a narcissistic ex? Uh, what is, is the way forward? Yeah, great question. The simple answer and the most truthful answer is no. <laughs> no, uh, if, you're, if you've already gone through a high conflict custody evaluation and possibly a trial and maybe, you know, you've been tied up for many, many months, maybe even longer on a case, I, I'm going to have to say that I, 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 I might, if I were betting money, you know, you, you, you can't co-parent. The courts want to see that you have tried, okay? So what the GAL, one of the determining factors about custody is can the parties co-parent? What they will look for is a willingness and a good spirit, you know? So if you can prove 
that despite my best efforts to co-parent, meaning I've kept the other party in the loop on medical appointments, on report cards, signing up for extracurriculars, any other concerns, I've, I've done all that. But despite my efforts, they outright sabotage, um, you know, signing up for a sport or not following through on medical appointments. You know, they've, maybe they've alleged that you never tell them when the appointment is so they can't be there on a well visit or when the child's sick. Meanwhile, you've done all that. But the game is that they they don't really want to be on the appointment. They don't really, you know, they they're really just trying to to get to 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 slam you and to make your life miserable. So okay, you've done everything to communicate with that person. You have it in writing. You know, email is a beautiful thing. You have an electronic record. Same with a text message. That's what you want to show the court. You know, I tr- I've tried. Despite my efforts, it just doesn't work. There are other things that can be done when there is there's a real negative ability to to co-parent. Um, there are apps, things like um, My Family Wizard, where your communication can be reviewed by both lawyers. Um, it it keeps it in a really kind of controlled space so that you're you're not a sitting duck for harassment. Um, there are, you know, I have many clients where they're routinely harassed by a, a narcissist with an abundance of communication that doesn't really add up to a resolution when it comes to parenting. It's just kind of an ongoing attack. That really limits the other party's ability to be able to do that. Um, there are, in some um, districts, parent coordinators who often are uh, mental health people. They can also be lawyers who will be a neutral party and review communications and also make recommendations that are considered legally binding. So let's say the court sort of cuts you loose and says, you have to co-parent. We don't really care what happens from now. You know, they do that when, when people have been really um, court involved at some point, they just, they just get tired of you. They get tired of your case and it's like, okay, we've made the recommendations. Maybe it's family therapy. Maybe it's, um, you know, it, whatever the recommendations are, you're, you're on your own now and you still can't do it. The court can appoint a, a parent coordinator. And so let's say that um, there's an educational dispute that you can't resolve and both of you have, you know, shared legal custody where you're looking at a private school versus a public school and it's really getting heated and a a parent coordinator can prevent you from going back to court. A parent coordinator can look at that and make a recommendation which is considered legally binding. So, but again, that gets into, you know, more expense, um, it's sort of, uh, you know, a somewhat of a reduction in court time, 
but in some ways you're still somewhat tied up with the court system and, and it's really not preferable. I, a lot of this comes down to resources. You know, if we're talking about somebody who's a toxic abuser that has endless resources to harass you through the court system, that will happen. Um, what I do tell people is in terms of how deeply they should, they're you know, willing to go in terms of getting a guardian ad litem, going to court, if there is any possible way for people to settle their case, and I, I highly recommend it. And, and making concessions where you can live with them, even if they're difficult, even if you feel that they're unfair, if it protects your children. Because the risk is that once you get into court, you, you lose control. People are looking for the court system to be an answer to their problem. And they find themselves dealing with, maybe they really disagreed with the GAL report. You know, maybe they feel like the GAL really got it wrong or the judge really got it wrong. And now we all have to live with, with that. That's a, that's a really sad tra- tragedy for, for everyone involved. And you're, once you are court involved, it's, it's very, it's high risk. So, uh, Leslie Miller, I want to thank you for being here with me today with sharing your knowledge with everyone in our universe and our audience here. So, from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. And where can everyone uh, find you? Uh, and uh, can you just give a rundown of all of the services you give? Yeah, absolutely. So, I am based in Boston, Massachusetts. I offer... Um, counseling and coaching for individuals going through narcissistic abuse, complex trauma. Um, I offer services to help um, with those involved in high conflict custody and divorce. You can find me on my website, which is lesliemillerlicsw.com. Um, I offer a brief uh, phone consultation to find out if we're a good fit and if I can help. Um, and yeah, so thanks so much for having me on. I absolutely love your podcast. It's helped so many of my clients. Well, you're welcome. And today you helped a lot of people too. So thank you for being here and doing this. And for everyone listening from Leslie Miller and I, we hope you have a good night.